This podcast is a recording of a talk given by Suzanne Wilson-Higgins on Publishing on Demand. This talk was given at the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies on the 15th of February 2010. This talk was given as part of the module New Product Development, part of our MA Publishing Programme. Well, thank you for inviting me to come and speak uh, to your group. I've come uh, back a few times, actually, um, to speak to this, uh, this course. Um, I've got a title up there which uh, is a little bit different than I have used before because normally I would have said I was going to talk about printing on demand. But in fact, things have moved on so much in the last few years that in fact it's really um, using this technology has become a new way of publishing. And so I think publishing on demand, which very much ties into ebook and printing from digital files, um, is this kind of the new POD. Um, so um, I've kind of moved it into, into that, and I'm hopefully we'll talk a bit about publishing strategies. Uh, but first, if I can just introduce um, myself. Uh, most recently, and as of last Friday, I'm, I was with um, Lightning Source, um, and I was the um, European, Middle East, and Africa commercial director, and I actually set up the business in the UK. Um, and I'm kind of in between things at the moment. I'm looking at a project which is actually looking at um, renting textbooks online to students. So that's a, an interesting area for the future um, as a project uh, starting from next week. But uh, at the moment, I'm kind of between things. But we're, that organization is part of a wider group called Ingram Content Group which is a, a wholesaler of books in the US uh, traditionally and has also been engaged in digital uh, book distribution um, as well as print on demand. And uh, Lightning Source UK started um, in 2001 um, and we've been printing um, ever since. Uh, and prior to that, I was working in um, retailing and library supply um, I was the board director with Blackwells, who you probably know from the bookshop in Oxford, um, which was part of that business. Um, but uh, my role was primarily in the library supply business, so that was mostly international and library consortia in the UK, so working with academic libraries um, and supplying them with both periodicals and books. And then before that, I was actually a publisher. Um, so for five years, worked with Reed, what is now Reed Elsevier. At the time, um, was Reed International Books, and then merged with Elsevier. And in particular, Butterworth Heinemann, which is where I met Philip, who I think you'll be hearing from Philip Shaw at another time um, during the course. We were, we were colleagues. And um, basically, if, you, if you're not familiar with Reed Elsevier, it's a, an STM or a professional uh, book um, and journal publisher. Uh, and what I was doing at the time was publishing uh, management books. Um, I had Peter Drucker as one of my authors, which was, you know, just a gift. Um, so if you have a, a really strong author with a great back catalog and then are, are doing new books at the time, it's, it's great. So I've done a bit of publishing, a bit of um, retailing and library supply, and, um, and then more recently printing on demand. So do ask any questions, not that I'll have the answer, but I do know a lot of publishers um, in, the, in the course of things. Um, Sheila mentioned that I've brought lots of samples. Most of these, all but one in fact, are lightning source uh, samples. There are other companies who are engaged in print on demand and I'll be talking about some examples um, from those companies. I did bring one espresso book which I'll save for the end because I'm there towards the end of my presentation. 
but um, I think probably we should pass them out. Is that okay? I know it's a bit maybe disruptive for everybody, but what I've brought um, are, these are all books that are digitally printed. Some of them are uh, hardbacks. Some of them are hardback with jackets. Some of them are paperbacks. Some of them are color throughout um, paperbacks. Um, so a variety of different types of books. And the reason um, I bring books uh, along is because a lot of people have had um, ideas about digital printing which perhaps are out of date. So it's really to make sure it's clear that, that what you're looking at are all digitally printed books. Um, historically, and I can remember when I was at Reed Elsevier many years ago, um, somebody from Xerox came along and showed us a digital book and it was just disgusting. I mean, it was, you couldn't read it, it was very faded, it was not very well pres presented and the binding was awful. Um, and things have moved on tremendously now uh, to the point where these are being manufactured one-off on demand. Um, and what that means is that say an order comes in for a book from Amazon is electronically sent to uh, Lightning Source and then Lightning Source is printing and binding and shipping that book within hours. In the U.S. facility, they're doing that within eight hours. Um, within the U.K. facility, um, the fastest is about 15 hours, but it's still very, very fast. So it's as if it was in a warehouse, which changes the whole thinking about, do I actually need to have books made before they're actually sold? So one of the key um, principles, and I'm looking at this list here, we go through those, that is that you can make new titles available <laughs> without having to manufacture them um, in advance. I mean, historically, the traditional route would have been for a publisher to speculate on how many they were going to sell, um, begin to sell them into the trade, and then adjust that number accordingly, and then print that number. And they'd be aiming to perhaps print uh, many thousands, um, typically, uh, a year's stock um, or even three years' stock if you're looking at an academic publisher. That's just not necessary anymore. Um, so making new titles available on demand means you don't have to have stock. Um, also, the ability to take titles that came out in a conventional print form and then the, the print run is, has, has run out, and there are none in stock. Um, so what do you do? Do you reprint a whole lot more, or, or, or do you um, print on demand? And what's happening is most publishers are moving to on demand because the setup car charges for actually setting that book up and having them available are not very expensive, it's not very prohibitive. So that they're building into their decision making for reprints in other words, you don't have to make a reprint decision. You just make a book go on demand as soon as the initial print run is uh, exhausted. So again, you don't have to have uh, time and effort spent eliminating a reprint decision making, which could take time to discuss, do we want to or don't we want to? Do we think there's enough sales? A lot of time wasted um, discussing that when you just flip it to on demand. If there is demand, you make one, and if there isn't, you don't. So it's, it's absolutely in line with what the market wants. It also enables you to reduce or eliminate your on-hand inventory. So if uh, an important aspect of publish publishing, which is often not discussed uh, or, or visited even, 
um, are the distribution centers and the distributors role um, that basically you've got physical books going into a physical location. Um, those, that, those organizations are typically managing things like the royalty, um, the tracking of sales, uh, financial statements on royalties, but basically enabling them to reduce inventory where typically they're charging a publisher or there's a real cost to having physical books on hand. That goes away because it's just virtual stock. It's like held, uh, the book is held in a virtual place. Um, you don't have to have it physically available, but it is available quickly. The other area that's been interesting, and Lightning Source in particular have been active in this with um, exporting using distributed print and reselling. What this means is doing deals locally by saying we can make this whole catalog of millions of books available to you. Um, so if you took someone like um, the Book Depository or someone like that in the UK, a, a, an internet retailer who's based here, or, or Amazon.com or Amazon.co.uk, um, and you make available the whole catalog uh, for resale, then they can just buy it and then the books will be manufactured for export. So if I was an American publisher wanting to access uh, Europe, let's say they wanted to get into UK, Germany, or France, you can make your book available to Amazon in those locations and then you could print locally. Um, and similarly going the other way, so if you're a UK or European-based publisher, so for instance Springer, who do this extensively with Lightning, make available their titles in the US, uh, again through this reselling model. So you're able to import and export books. Um, and then you're also able to do special things like um, large print editions. So if you wanted to have a larger font size for visually impaired um, reading, or if you want custom publishing, where the, a book is repurposed or specifically made, you don't have to have a long print run. You could print one or you could print 10. Um, and I have some examples of companies who are doing, in fact, that um, custom publishing. So you'd, because really it's down to the file that you're making and then uploading your file, that becomes the book which you can then print. And print is just another output. So that's a kind of overview of um, what I mean by print on demand. Hopefully that's clear. There's time for questions later, but hopefully it'll become clear. And, just, and seeing some of the books might help. Who is using print on demand today? I mean, I, I think it would be fair to say almost everyone, um, but um, to make be more specific, there are kind of several different groups. The traditional uh, book publishers, who in fact were quite slow initially to move into, um, uh, into digital print. Um, but it, it happened kind of by segments um, in the, the scientific medic and medical, uh, technical medical and academic, and particularly the academic publishers who had lots of text only black and white backlist um, and that were fairly high priced, um, started to move into using digital printing as a way of bringing back books um, I think Cambridge had a program called the Lazarus Program. It was bringing books back to life like Lazarus. Um, and, and different programs like that, which started. And then you've got other areas, uh, trade, in particular specialist trade. So where perhaps it was a, a I, I can recall um, chess books, for instance. Uh, I remember that because it was so difficult to digitally print chess boards. 
um, accurately with the halftone technology we had at the time. And we've now got much better halftone technology. The industry has improved enormously with halftones. But specialist trade books, religious books, and educational books, those are the key segments that really started to use on demand. And now there are STM publishers who only do on demand. And I've got some examples of, of that work as well. Um, and then you've got the kind of traditional and, uh, and new journal publishers. And I've brought along some academic journals uh, examples. Um, that's newer in the sense that they're using digital printing technology, but it's not all on demand because they tend to be printing short runs and then topping up with on demand. Um, so they do, they print with a subscription uh, rate. It's a different business model with journals where they're actually selling a subscription and you're taking the money up front rather than selling it through the book trade. And then you've got non-traditional publishers, and this is actually how uh, companies like CreateSpace from Amazon's CreateSpace and how Lightning Source originally uh, started, um, is the non-traditional publishers, as soon as you had the capability to sell online through the likes of an Amazon, uh, through an internet retailer, and, uh, and I had a catalog where you could list thousands of titles and then people could search and find them. And you had tools like Google to go and look and find books. Um, and then you had the ability to develop applications that companies like Lulu or um, Author House, uh, who developed internet-based applications to make a book. So you step-by-step step, as a consumer can go and make a book yourself and self-publish. And it's not expensive. In the old days, you'd call it vanity publishing, and it would be very expensive, and you'd pay someone a lot of money, thousands of pounds, to produce 50 books or something that you might give your grandmother and extended family. But these are um, non-traditional publishers enabling you to do that in a massive scale, and also enabling niche publishers to get started. Um, Lulu has a, a product called Published by You, and it enables a micro-publisher to come out with their own ISBN and their own list so barriers to entry to being a publisher have just disappeared over the last decade. Um, you can use these tools. Um, other non-traditional examples, the content aggregators are people who are scanning uh, documents. So Google really has gone into content aggregation um, in that they have a massive library program where they're scanning out of copyright works. It's very contentious and there's all kinds of issues. But when you get to out, uh, beyond out of copyright, what is in copyright, what's an orphan work, but there, there, there are more modest aggregators. I mean, we had one in the UK uh, called Read Books, um, another one in the US called Kessinger Books. They were scanning particular areas of interest. So the, a guy inherited a library of, of, of uh, books from his father and then just started scanning them. They're all like Victorian hunting books, hugely popular, really successful, and that actually funded the starting of the business. And now they've got about 25,000 titles. Um, in print. So there's a, there are non-traditional examples. And then libraries, and I've got an example that later on of the British Library, which is probably the ultimate uh, example of, uh, of libraries getting involved in print-on-demand and e-book. So really, I'm going to go through a list, and you've got them in front of you, of kind of case study examples um, of different types of publishers that have used this technology to change the way they publish and the way they reach the market. Um, this first one is uh, about Lightning Source. I mean, obviously, I know a lot more about Lightning Source than any other, other business, but I'm going to give you some examples of competitors that I've been working with and, and against, in fact, for the last few years. 
But this is a, a lightning source example. Thomas Nelson is based in Nashville in the U.S. Um, our headquarters were in Nashville in the U.S. And um, that's important because what they ended up doing was a big trial to see if they could replace having any stock at all for a publisher um, and to do all of the fulfillment through a combined service with uh, Ingram and Lightning Source, be making available all of their titles on demand and reselling them. And what they did was they came up with a, a system solution, actually, which is the, kind of the third point here, what was called Quick Ship. And what it meant was they could put on every retail system in the U.S., so if you went into um, a Barnes & Noble, it will show that that Thomas Nelson uh, book has 100 copies in stock, which is not true. There are none. But the retail systems will then allow ordering to take place in a much more um, free manner if you have 100 showing in stock, because they know they're going to get their order. If it said two in stock, then they're a bit reluctant because they may not get them, and there's, there are the, which creates issues about ordering. And so this is because it's talking to very dumb retail systems that, that can't cope with <laughs> the idea of virtual stock. Um, and so they did that, and it's been pretty <laughs> successful. So basically, all their front list has been exported <laughs> into Europe through Lightning, and all of their um, front list was launched in the US, um, again, on demand, but with this 100 in stock to retailers. And they've got over 2,000 active POD titles now which is basically their new books. They're going back, working backwards to do backlist, but they're, um, it's a front list driven niche market. Um, and it solved a lot of their issues. They were having, I don't know if you are aware, but one of the leading distributors of, of Christian books in the UK went bust recently. And this solved Thomas Nelson's issues in that whole area <laughs> and it financially really saved the company. Um, Favor. This is a, an example of Gardeners. Now, Gardeners are a wholesaler that you may or may not be familiar with. They're in the UK. They are selling books, buying books from publishers and reselling them to retailers. They also have a distribution business, which where they distribute for small publishers. Um, but they have a partnership with a company called CPI, uh, which has a division called Anthony Rowe. And they do manufacturing on demand in uh, their distribution warehouse in Eastbourne. And Faber decided to come out with um, a backlist of out-of-copyright works, really, that they originally, in most cases, had published uh, first time round, and to do them in a very um, professional and, and attractive manner. And they came out with these uh, books, which uh, actually won some awards, I think, as well, because they were done so nicely. They were really well designed and thought through. But these are these classics, and they're called Faber Finds. Um, there's a web link on there if you want to go and look at them, but it gives you a kind of, I can't really tell if it's white against white, but it's kind of a white covers and um, very nicely just laid out and um, very nice typographical input to it. Um, and it's been a real successful, and this example of a, of a deep backlist or out of copyright um, project that a publisher's um, been engaged with. I'm going to just put all of these up, I think, because it kind of goes through this. Is that true? Yeah. Um, this one, I'm sorry about that, it's overprinted on the, on the top. Um, this is a project that Lightning Source was engaged with, with STM publisher Springer, or Springer Business and Media, which is the um, 
uh, used to be Kluwer Academic, and then they bought Springer Verlag, and they bought these businesses together. And they're based in, headquartered in Germany and the Netherlands. Uh, in fact, they don't really do much publishing in the UK. They do have a sales um, operation here, but they're, they're pre pretty much a German company with Dutch management. Um, and they started to get involved through Kluwer with um, Lightning Source, gosh, around eight years ago. And have built up to the point where they have about 40,000, nearly 30, 35, there's nearly 40,000 now on um, on-demand titles, which is just about everything they're doing. It's two-thirds of their front list. The only stuff they don't do on-demand is color, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But they came up with this project called My Copy, a service in effect to libraries, which was taking a subscription service for ebooks. They subscribe. Uh, sell a whole collection of all their ebook content to libraries. The libraries then pay for that subscription. But one of the problems the libraries find is that when they have ebook only, that there are inevitably some individuals who would like a copy of the book, a physical copy of the book, either a member of, of the academic staff or students. And um, there was, wasn't really an answer to that service issue from the library's point of view. So Springer created this as a service for the library, but straight off of their Springer Link um, uh, project. So they sell the ebook package to the library, that's number one. They then give the library patrons access to the ebook, which then they can just use that if they want to. But if they, if they don't want, if they do actually want a physical copy, you can then order it straight off the Springer Link screen. And we print on demand one copy and send it directly to that student's home address. Uh, and it's $25, so it's not, and it's for anything. When typically, they would, these are $250 uh, monographs in hardback of this type. So these are pretty specialist type books. Um, typically, they were library editions, hardback, and um, chunky. Um, but these are done at a flat rate, inclusive of postage. Just push the button, put it on your credit card, done. Um, and then the order comes to the print on demand provider, which in this case has been. Um, lightning source, but could be another provider, and I think they are working with CreateSpace now too. And, and then the provider prints and binds and drop ships the, the book back to the student or um, their staff. The libraries, they, they rolled this out as a trial last year, and there are five library consortia involved in the U.S., and they liked it so much, they've now rolled it out globally as of this year. So it's been really quite a successful um, complementary product. Just, just to sure. show you that slide, in point three, it says SL uses, that single? Springer Link. Oh, Springer yeah. Link. Okay. It's, it's on, it's, 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 Springer Link is the name of their um, online service. Um, this is an example of a database publisher, and I'm, you may or may not have much to do with them at all, but um, so a publisher whose primary product is to create an electronic database. In this case, it's food science technology abstracts. So this is summarizing articles about food science technology, so pretty niche. And basically an electronic product. They moved from, um, they basically had this online, um, well, I guess it was a very old um, uh, stored set of data, which moved to CD-ROM. We were talking about CD-ROM earlier. It moved into a CD-ROM, so a more portable data. It's always been a database. And then they moved to a web-based delivery um, when the internet took off. And so it's always been electronic. But they decided um, that they would, uh, they wanted to make available a printed version of one of the journals. 
and they only needed around 200 copies a year. It wasn't, in fact, most people use this as an online tool, but they really had this small demand for printed uh, versions or extracts, if you like, from the database. And so they introduced um, an on-demand, the print-on-demand uh, solution for those. And they do about 200 copies uh, every time there's a new issue that goes into this abstract um, database. And this is an area I think is going to grow enormously because really you're better off having lots of databases which you can plug print into rather than thinking of things as print products necessarily um, in isolation. And there are a lot of other databases out there that have just not been exploited. Um, and now this one's a really uh, topical and new one from February, basically, um, in that the British Library, and I haven't spoken to the British Library a lot over the years, so I'm pretty familiar with the content that they have. They have a really outstanding and unaccessed um, 19th century collection uh, of books and all kinds of material, of which some of it was scanned during World War II to save it in case it was bombed. Um, and a, a company in the States that was in microfilm uh, business turned that into a database. And there is actually a database of they call the 19th Echo, the uh, 18th century, and then there's another one, the 19th century collection online. Um, but it's only really an extract from what's actually at the British Library. And there's many, many thousands of books. I think it's something like 80,000 different works, most of which are not even accessible unless you go to the library. And they've been engaged in scanning projects um, with Microsoft initially, and now they're going to do this partnership with CreateSpace and Kindle. And this is a, almost an e-book-led initiative, um, which is kind of about Amazon getting it on Kindle, this part of their, their thing. But it's, it, it's then seeing printed paperback copies of first editions available as a kind of plug-in and you know, looking at a 15 pound price point. So again, not terribly expensive. It is an out of copyright uh, work, so they have to be careful because obviously anybody can come out with it. But it will be their edition, it'll have their brand on it. And that will, I think, carry some um, weight. Uh, and it's stuff that isn't available otherwise. So it's a very interesting project um, that we'll start to see, I think, the first books coming out later this year. Now this one, I've got, um, I think I maybe handed around one example of this type of thing. But this is, these are some journal uh, examples. Um, so the, uh, Kindawe are a company that do what's called open access journals. In other words, they've, they're not the same as the kind of traditional uh, old, uh, old school publishing model. Um, open access tends to make things available um, online and uh, freely available, and it's funded by a funding council or someone like that in the background. Um, but they have some of these niche areas, and they've decided to just plug in on-demand both books to their book product and journal issues to their journals. Um, and they are using color, which is uh, one of the things that, it, because the, their price points are quite high, I mean, they're only using color in this kind of way. So it's different, different authors may have data, for instance, that they want shown in color. So, but this entire product is printed on a color machine, even though many of the pages are just black and white. Um, and that's a, an area that I'll talk about at, uh, at the end, which is about color and how that's changing. Um, the technology is, is, is going through quite a lot of change, um, which will enable, I think, more publishers to take advantage of color. Um, but this example is uh, 
linked to Wikipedia. Wikipedia Press are a software company that um, has a licensing agreement with the Wikipedia Foundation to create, to well, put software on Wikipedia sites which enables users in the community to create paper books and ebooks from Wikipedia content. And this rolled out on non-English language sites, I think there were five, and then Simple English, which is, has a restricted vocabulary version of um, Wikipedia, um, and will be coming out, they've done it, did a whole beta test over the year with that community, and will be launching into main, more mainstream uh, English UK and English American Wikipedia later on. Um, for instance, one of the things, the feedback, I didn't think I brought, I didn't think I didn't bring an example of them, but they basically look like that. They're all kind of templated covers. And they've looked, they're basically um, coming out with a, a number of different covers. So one of the feedbacks from people using it was that they wanted not to have just have the same old cover. Don't worry. <laughs> I was just saying earlier, oh, I better turn my phone off. <laughs> so, don't worry. Um, so that's, the kind of plain covers are, are going to go away and they'll have a whole different suite of covers electronically there that you can then compile and pull your book together. So if you're wanting to take content, and frankly, I mean, we, I think our receptionist at, at Lightning Source made a book in about half an hour in her lunch hour because um, she wanted to make a gift for somebody. It was all about the 60s or something and she pulled all this stuff from Wikipedia into it. So it's actually, and then you're only paying the print price, so it's actually really quite cheap. Um, and uh, it's part of the, what they see as the wiki community um, and, and using wiki content. So that's uh, a different use. Again, another database example. And then I have one example which you can pass around, but I'll just hold it up for now, which is um, a slightly different, and it does feel a bit different, and it is actually bound differently, um, which is an example of the uh, Espresso book machine, which is um, located, I think there's one in the UK, but most of them are in libraries, in fact, and a lot of libraries are interested in these um, and using them for content. But the, the, it's quite good black and white, it's not in color, um, but again, it, they look, if you make sure the design's right and things, it can work. Um, the, the, the covers are not laminated, so there's, there's some issues sometimes with dura durability and, and marking and things like that. But it's, um, so you can make a book literally within a an hour or so um, in store. It's a model that hasn't really proved itself yet, and it may not work in a retail environment. Um, but it is, the idea is that you have distributed machines in lots of locations, and it will work in locations where there may be not the infrastructure. And so the World Bank, for instance, are very interested in this, have been very involved with buying machines to put in country locations where they've got good um, internet uh, access and um, but not necessarily the distribution for getting physical books moved around is actually harder than sending data over the lines and then they can make books locally for local consumption so that's another area that publishers can plug into so it says down here 800 publishers a publisher can opt into providing their content to the espresso book machine and they can either contract directly with espresso or they can contract with Lightning. And now that Xerox have actually bought the company, Xerox are now offering a, an infrastructure globally for service, which is going to be very interesting. And I, so I, I can see them expanding into Xerox shops and 
other uh, locations that Xerox customers um, operate. Yeah. I'll just add something to that. Um, the, the Black Welsh one that is available at the moment is currently in Charing Road. So if you're in London, you can go and have a look at it. But there are plans to move it to the Oxford flagship shop in Broad Street, um, and they hope to move it there by April. So mm. you might well have a chance to go and see that. But one of the things that they've noticed is that, as in, I think they put it in Barnes and Noble in the States. Yes, in there York, is one. Yeah, there is one in Barnes and Just as in the States, here in the UK, the people who are using it are something like 72% people who are coming in with material they've written themselves, right. they've got it on a digital file, and they want to see a real book. <laughs> right. So that's quite an interesting development. Whether it's going to stay like that, with that balance of personal uh, use, we don't know yet. That's true, and in fact, at London Book Fair last year, um, that was kind of the big story that they took with it. They had a, a woman turn out this French woman, wasn't she? Anyway, they turned up with this book, and then plugged it into the machine, and then they made the book, and then um, and walked away. And that is something that is more than possible to do um, locally, and that's actually probably more useful than having tons of content available on some server somewhere, which will come down, which is probably published in an alternative way that would be easier to access. So I think the whole self-publishing and uh, author services arena could be affected by this, transformed by this. Yeah. This is another one that I wanted to just flag as an example. Again, it's a, uh, some web links. There's BiblioLife and BiblioBazaar. BiblioLife is a content aggregator. They are so committed to the library model that we heard like the British Library and CreateSpace partnership. They are helping libraries to, to do their own projects and make their collections available, particularly their special collections where maybe they're unique and no one else can get them. So having scanners go into a library, scan material, and then the library is treated like the author and is getting a royalty. So it's, um, it's an interesting development of, use, of accessing special collections and out-of-copyright works with the library acting as the publisher. Um, and this company is, um, is facilitating that. I mean, they've got over half a million titles now. Their goal, I mean, they, they think there's something like 90 million titles or something. They want to go for any languages they're doing. And so they're, they're quite ambitious. Um, and in fact, these are the, the guys who started Book Surge, which is the company that became CreateSpace um, for on demand at, at Amazon. And they're a very interesting bunch. So their point of vision that the old books deserve a new life is their kind of slogan, and that's what they do, is <laughs> make books available. And they're doing different versions, like large print, um, but really getting those libraries to do the work themselves and to be acting like authors. And then I mentioned um, earlier inventory management and distributors. And I think it's worth, when you're looking at publishing strategies and what you might be doing as a, as a publisher, in using this technology, you've got different um, approaches, I would say, and uh, just three examples on here. You've got uh, companies who are distributors themselves who are engaged in reducing stock and enabling publishers to go uh, stockless or, or to reduce their stock in some way. So the, the distributor-based gardeners would kind of be an example. Gardeners are involved in the distribution business. Um, another Perseus in the U.S., but in the U.K., just down the road, Marston Book Services is one, and they have their own printing machines uh, and under the Marston Digital brand. 
associated with their distribution center. And as part of a publisher's contractual relationship with the distributor, they might choose to sign up to use them as a printer um, and to manage the stock or no stock, depending on how it works. So there's printing equipment right there in the distribution center, and they're primarily doing short runs, so not single copy or one-off. They're doing multiple books, but maybe 10, maybe 50, depending on the predicted demand. Um, they're acting as an outsourcing partner, so they're working with the publisher where the publisher doesn't want to be engaged in that activity themselves. They want to outsource it to somebody else. So they're in that kind of relationship. And they can manage a mixed model of having stocked items or stockless items. So it really depends on where the ISBN is in its life cycle. Um, sometimes it does make sense to have stock, and other times it really is unnecessary to have stock. So you can think that through depending on the demand um, of a particular book or list of books. There's another approach which is totally stockless. An African Books Collective, another, another uh, organization actually based in the Oxford area, um, decided to go completely 100% on demand because they didn't need to have stock. Um, they're in a niche market. Their key thing was to having, having availability, not stock. So um, stockless works. And to be honest, Springer have really gone that route. They're closing their warehouses globally. So they're, they're actually exiting from distribution business um, and uh, have gone into joint ventures with other people to do that. So 100% um, demand, uh, on demand. And then you've got another kind of model, which John Wiley and Sons, who again are in Oxford area, but also down at Chichester, and Bogner Regis is where their distribution center is for Europe. They've adopted an ultra short run approach, which is that they have systems who, that can predict roughly what the demand is going to be next week or the next few weeks. And their view is that they will keep several weeks stock regardless. So they always have some stock, and sometimes that's one copy, and sometimes that's a thousand copies because they're going to sell that many in a week. So they're looking really at predicting the demand, at, but managing very, very ultra short run stocks, um, keeping it on as, as little as possible on, as on hand you know, inventory that's going to sell eventually but they're managing it in that, in that way. And they're also using more traditional print methods like LIFO um, as well. And so because they have that mixed economy, it makes more sense for them at this stage to have both available. And that means they have to manage their space very carefully. So there are different approaches to inventory management. And that, it, it may, I don't know how boring it sounds for your publishing strategy, but it is pretty important to your bottom line. <laughs> Because <laughs> this is, you can waste so much money on overstocking. Many companies have gone out of business overstocking or just overprinting. Um, so you need to look at that. Um, and then I just thought I'd highlight a few things about the, the kind of trends. Uh, I think I'm probably done. Um, digital workflow. Um, this is so important. Uh, I'm probably not recognized by everybody, but the, the fact that we've moved into a completely digital workflow in terms of creating books um, is so important and it enables the, uh, the idea that you can have multiple outputs and you're exploiting those digital assets in different ways. And you can also repurpose things in a much more, if you do it in the right manner, um, in a much more um, flexible way. So tracking what you've done, how you've done it, and then repurposing 
these are so important uh, to the future of, of publishing, really. Um, and it's then such an important element of what we do. And, and complementary to that, using XML or having XML as a lowest common denominator, and I don't know how much you're, if you're engaged, you are talking about XML and things and workflows, I'm assuming. Um, that, that using XML or, or basic lowest common denominator of whatever that is at, at, at any given time, at the moment XML seems to be, um, but allowing the idea that you can have multiple outputs from your core digital assets. So important to the way you think about publishing, I think, going forward. And then the tracking of where these digital assets go and how you're commercially exploiting them is going to be a key feature of the future um, that I don't think everybody's really been focused on. There are certain companies that are beginning to get into this because they realize we've got to keep track of everything. And if we don't, it affects royalties, it affects the whole commercial model for the business. But being able to track where your assets are, what the rights are surrounding those assets, and then to have those uh, available, that, that tracking, that history in an auditable um, way is quite important. And it is becoming more complex uh, as you, we have more channels, more retail outlets, more ways of reaching uh, different customers. And just a final point on the kind of trends in, in printing. Um, we're seeing basically, I've talked a lot about this already, but the move to virtual inventory or micro inventory. So you don't need to have lots of physical, lots of cash tied up in books. Because all those books are on the shelf is cash <coughs> sitting there. Um, that your physical book distribution um, and having that in one place perhaps uh, historically or maybe a couple of places is, and where you may be producing books in one country and shipping them over to another country. <laughs> but that's moving away. We're looking at distributed print. So I guess Espresso is probably the most dramatic example of that, where you've got very localized printing going on. That you've got the technology improving and quality improving. And I've got a couple of, you've had a couple of color examples come around. I mean, this is the sort of quality that you're getting digital, digital photography printed on a digital press today. Um, but this is going to, improve um, quite dramatically. And things do, it depends on the kinds of paper that you're using and all kinds of other factors and inks. Um, but the technology is going to make a step change in terms of color over the next couple of years. And so you'll see a lot more color product being produced on demand. And then you've got emerging print and finishing technologies. In particular, the finishing has been really not looked at by a lot of the manufacturers. So binding hard, actually doing a completely automated case binding from beginning to end doesn't exist. We, there was a company that, that uh, Lightning was looking at very carefully to try and make that happen and it just didn't work. And there was only one, a Swiss company. Um, there really isn't a solution to binding without people being involved in a manual process at some point, even today. So there are areas that will, will change and that will come, it just have, isn't there yet. So binding is going to be an area. And then, I'm, as I said, mentioned color, which I think is going to be rather exciting. If we can just say thank you very much to Suzanne. <laughs>